I was scared to death to reach out and tell anybody that I think I want to die. Welcome to the Depression Files, where we talk about everything related to mental health. From depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. We educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. All right, I'm here today with Steve Austin. Thank you, Steve, so much for joining me. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Al. Hey, why don't we start, uh, can you just tell the audience about yourself? Yeah, sure. So uh, I am Steve Austin. Uh, I am an author, a speaker, a life coach, a former pastor, and um, that is sort of, in in the pastoral role, is sort of where everything fell apart for me, which is... uh, kind of crazy, but I, I wrote a book here um, about a year ago called From Pastor to a Psych Ward, and that is my story, how how a guy can go from uh, late 20s, early 30s, family man, pastor, educator, seeming to have it all together, everything going my way, and end up in a psych ward after a suicide attempt. Wow. So yeah, that's my story. Yeah, that... Um... You know, you hear that often. Sometimes uh, the depression comes upon people who seem like everything's going their way. They've got a decent job, a decent salary, a family life, and then all of a sudden, and and maybe sometimes there are things happening in the background, but I don't think there necessarily has to be. Yeah. Um, So prior to you becoming a pastor, things were smooth? You didn't know depression or mental illness uh, prior to that? No, there was depression. There was anxiety. Um, it was just never dealt with. Nothing was ever done about it. I didn't know I had permission to go see a counselor or uh, that therapy was appropriate. I grew up, uh, we live in, in the buckle of the Bible Belt. So I'm in Birmingham, Alabama, and there's a church on every corner. And um, in the churches that I grew up in, you couldn't be a Christian and have a mental illness. Right. So um, you mentioned depression or thoughts of suicide or something like that, and this team of people prepped to cast out a demon. And so it's uh, mental illness is very stigmatized in the evangelical church. I hear that we're making some improvements in certain churches in certain areas, and I, I hope that is true. I haven't seen a whole lot of it here yet. We're usually the last ones for things to things kind of trickle down here to the south. Um, but yeah, I I am uh, a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Uh, I was just a preschooler when that happened, and there was never any therapy, any help. Uh, it was all we're gonna say a prayer of faith, and we're gonna go to church, and God's gonna you know snap his fingers and make everything better. Right. And wow. um, yeah, yeah, and I you know I'm I am still very much a person of faith, but I'm a human and. Yeah. I try to encourage people to recognize that they're a, a whole person that, yeah, sure, that right. spiritual side is important for a lot of people, but but we're, you know, mind, body, and spirit, and, and sometimes we need 
doctors and therapy and meds and you know uh, right. there's all sorts of things that go into making up a whole person so yeah so did you know at the time of the abuse or were you just too young to even understand that it was abuse at the time so I was a senior in high school when I had my first flashback, first panic attack. Didn't have those words. I didn't right. know what was going on. I thought I was dying. I thought I was having a heart attack. I thought, oh, here I am, you know, 18 years old. I'm out of here. Right. Um, and, I, you know, I can kind of grin about it now because I think, yeah, poor kid. That's that's absolutely what I thought. But now I know it was you know, all these thoughts, these memories flooding back, the the heart beating out of my chest, the knot in my stomach that grew to a knot in my throat, you know. Um, yeah, we were, um, I was part of a, a leadership group in my county. And so they picked two or three students from each high school that made up this forum. And we would go once or twice a month to either a business or a government agency and meet leaders in our community and listen to their story and ask them questions about what leadership looked like in real life. And one of the trips that we took was to the Department of Human Resources, um, which might be CPS or something right. in other states, but um, DHR. And the director came out and she brought out this doll that they would use when a kid has been abused and you know, the child would point to wherever they'd been harmed or whatever. And man, all this stuff all of a sudden comes just pouring back, flashbacks and all that. And um I was, you know, I was kind of the kid in high school. It was Mr. Everything. I was involved in everything you could be involved in. I was everybody's friend. I was the kid who was on top of the world and suddenly felt like the world was on top of me. Um, so I, I left the room in a panic, got out into the hallway and just sort of collapsed in the floor. And one of the chaperones, one of the teachers came out and sort of, you know, talking me through, Hey, what's going on? And I'm trying to explain what's going on, but I can't really put words to what's happening. And she finally came around to, Hey buddy, it sounds like you're having a panic attack. And, um, so I made it home that afternoon, started talking to my mom, telling her what happened. And my mom and I were super close. I'm total mama's boy. Right, right. And, uh, and uh, she was just always in my corner. She was my cheerleader, my number one fan. I could talk to mom about anything. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and this was the first time in my life that I remember her not making eye contact with me. And I remember thinking, man, something's not right. You know, what? what is the deal here? Right. Uh, and, you know, you find out later, I, I'm not – pointing fingers at mom. She was very, very young, uh, as a mom and was ashamed and embarrassed and humiliated and didn't know what to do. And so, um, this kid, she was tutoring this kid. He was a 17 year old neighbor and I was not quite four. She was tutoring the kid, uh, after school. And so once they discovered what happened, they found, figured everything out in the bath that night and saw, you know, marks and stuff on me. And, um, she just threatened the kid within an inch of his life and said, don't ever come back on my property. You know, if I ever see you here again, I'll call the cops. I'll call your parents. She knew that this kid's dad was just a, a raging alcoholic and thought, you know, things could be really bad for him if this stuff went further. Right, she thought, you know, right. he's a three-year-old. He's never going to remember this. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that was not true. Yeah. I, I remember it often. Right. So, yeah, we talked about it at the age of 18, and then... Before then, so, you said you, you knew uh, that you had depression and anxiety before that. Was that. Is that looking in hindsight, or growing up in elementary school and such, did you know that you 
were depressed and and had anxiety? I didn't know it okay. in elementary school. Didn't know it in middle school. Gotcha. Um, I didn't have the words for it in high school, but I knew that things weren't right. Okay. I was what I would have called very emotional. Right. Time. I cried a lot. Um, much more emotional than than my male counterparts right. out there, you know. So, but no, I didn't know that it was depression. I thought depression was, you know, a spiritual thing. Right, right. So after the panic attack, uh, and you you spoke with your mom, and then did you did you start getting support then in other ways? No, um, we talked about it that one time, and then that was it. And we just sort of swept it under the rug and moved on again. It was not another. It was for another ten years. Wow. Um, before I ever got support. And that was after the suicide attempt that was waking up in ICU going, Oh my God, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. I'm still here. And were you leading up to the suicide attempt? Could you feel yourself going downhill, getting worse and worse? And what were those symptoms like? Yeah, I was, like I said, a a youth pastor. I was a worship leader. I was working in a Southern Baptist church, tiny little church in a a little rural part of town. And uh, I can remember keeping my meds. I kept my meds in my lunchbox. And I would go in the bathroom, shut the door, lock the door, go in the stall, shut the stall door, lock the stall door, and take my meds in the bathroom stall because I was scared to death for anybody to find out that this pastor had a mental illness. Um, so I was taking my meds. I still wasn't in therapy. I'd never seen a psychologist, psychiatrist, any of that. I was just getting my meds from my primary care physician, um, which is an okay place to start, but I wouldn't stay there. I would agree. Um, yeah, yeah. And, um, so I was taking my meds, but things were getting worse. Then you add situational stuff on top of it. I lost my job. Um, and I just thought my world was falling apart. And, um, so I'd landed a, a two week contract job out of town was, um, staying in a hotel every night for two weeks. And, you know, when you're in just the dregs of depression, being by yourself yeah. is about the worst thing that you could possibly do. Absolutely. Yeah. So I was there in a hotel room for two weeks and shame is just you know, this shame storm, Brene Brown talks about a shame storm and just spiraling out of control and Ruminating. all these, yeah, yeah, all these lies that you're not good enough, that this is never going to get better. This is only going to get worse. Yeah. I had a wife and a one-year-old baby at home and I thought, man, this poor, this poor wife of mine, I, I'm going to use a word that I would never use today, but I thought she's married to a crazy person, right, you know, right. who's who's never going to get better. She deserves so much more than this. She's young. She's beautiful. She's smart. She can remarry. This baby will never remember me. Right. And and so I sort of, in a very irrational way, rationalized that my best option would be to just disappear. Hmm. And whereabouts in the two-week period? Was this kind of the end of your stay? Um, it got progressively worse every day. And, and were you able to share that with anybody? No, while I was, was scared worse? to death to reach out yeah. and tell anybody that I think I want to die. Right. Um, so, yeah, it was there that the end of that two week period, I thought I'm going home to nothing. This was a contract job. I've got no job. I've got nothing left. Um, you know, I'm still having flashbacks. Yeah. Um, 
all this stuff going on and I thought, man, this is the best thing for me to do is to just just mm. die. Give them a chance to I thought I was doing them a favor. Give them a chance yeah. to start over fresh. Would you say you felt like a burden? Oh, certainly. Yeah. yeah. That is uh, you know, I dealt with very similar feelings and I came to a point where I realized and understood about some folks who say I could never do it because of my family, yet they did it then. Yeah. And I understand, you know, that feeling of being a burden, being a horrible parent and father, awful at work. Um, like you said, the lies that depression tell you. Yeah. And it just being so overwhelming. So uh, tell us about the point. So you took that um, unfortunate step and you woke up in the ICU. And what was that like? It was shocking. I, you know, I know that, that we hear stories of people or people will say of other people, oh, it was a cry for help or it was a cry for attention or whatever. That was not the case for me. I fully intended to die, took right. tens of thousands of milligrams of prescriptions, you know, that were my own and then over the counter stuff as well. And totally intended to be gone. And so I woke up and there's this nurse and my wife and my wife's best friend and I'm freezing cold. And I thought, there's no way there's, there's no way that I'm possibly here. Like maybe I'm having some out of body experience. Maybe, you know, this is my ghost come back and I'm seeing what's happening. I don't know. I, I, I was just in Very such a surreal. Fog. It sounds like, yeah, it was such a fog. And Lindsay said, baby, what happened? And I think that she was trying to tell herself, you know, that, that this was a mistake, that I had gotten my meds mixed up, that, that some, you know, awful mistake had happened. And I said, no, this was not a mistake. I don't want to be here. I mm. tried to kill myself. Right. Couldn't feel my legs for three days in ICU. I'd taken so many pills. Um, they thought my liver was going to fail. And so I spent the first three days numb from the waist down and having to tell, you know, the few people that came to see me, um, just Lindsay and two friends of ours, um, made the drive and walking through that humiliation and mm. still not being certain that I wanted to live. You know, I think everybody else thought he made it. This is it. We're through, you know, this is right. the miracle we needed. Now he's going to get better. But no, those first three days, I, I wasn't sure that I wanted to live. Um, and so I was discharged from ICU and then immediately transferred to the psych ward. And that's a whole different experience. It's a dark, scary place. Yeah, so you went straight from the hospital to the psych ward. Yeah, the psych ward was there. Was this huge hospital is in a pretty big town. And um, so I was transferred from there, this this big orderly. I remember wheeling me down the hall and just feeling so helpless and thinking, you know, I go back to this pride I had in being this guy that had it all together and was such a hard worker and had been so successful in school and as a young adult and – and here I am on my way to the psych ward. I remember those big metal doors, big brown metal doors closing behind me and thinking, this is it. This, is, this has got to be the worst, most embarrassing, humiliating, lowest point of my life. I am hopeless at this point. Um, now, looking back, I know, you know that's not the case. Uh, certainly was not hopeless. It was probably the best thing 
that ever happened to me. But it didn't feel that way at the time. At the time, it felt pointless. We were, we were eating three meals a day and having a snack and taking a nap and having community time and talking about what makes us happy and what makes us sad. I've never been in counseling in my life, and I'm sitting around going, "What the heck are we doing?" You know. <laughs> right. But now, and it took me. September will be five years. It took me about the first three years to realize, man, they were teaching me to slow down. They Mm. were giving me permission to disconnect from everything else and stop taking care of everybody else and take care of me. Uh, I'd never learned about self-care in my life and had been grown up in the church, but had never learned that I had permission to love me and not just everybody else. Right. Uh, psych ward changed my life. Yeah, that's amazing. You said, how long were you in the ward? A week. One week. Yep. So, and that was 24 hours a day. You're in there the entire, uh, yeah. the entire week. Yeah. Lockdown unit. Um, was your wife able to visit you and did you have communication with the outside at all? We had a list of approved people and so um, Lindsay was my only person there. There were my parents, but I didn't want to talk to them. Uh, right. Her parents could have been on there, but I sure didn't want to talk to them. And they didn't want to talk to me. They were, um, boy, they were, they were so mad. They still haven't forgiven me. Um, they were so mad that I would, you know, make a choice like that. So Lindsay was my approved person. I could talk to her for, I think, 10 or 15 minutes a day. Yeah. That's uh it's too bad to hear that somebody would be angry at you for that decision. I think in my mind, it's clearly somebody who doesn't get it, who doesn't, oh, yeah. who doesn't yeah. get mental illness and doesn't understand. Um, and to not be able to forgive you to this day, um, that must be tough on you. You know, for a while I'm learning, uh, wrote about this and talked about it actually on my podcast here a couple of weeks ago, the difference in bitterness and boundaries. And if you look at them from the outside, they look very similar. You're cut off. There's less communication, you know, where the relationship has probably ended. But I think to make it really simple, the difference in bitterness and boundaries is It's all about the heart. So if I'm bitter, I may cut you off because I'm angry, I'm pissed, I hate your guts, Mm. I'm not forgiving you, whatever. There's bad blood there. But with boundaries, we're doing the same thing, but I'm saying, you know what, I'm not going to allow you to hurt me again. I know who I am. I'm working hard at my recovery every day. Living with a mental illness, we all know, is extremely difficult. And if you're not going to be supportive and you're not going to move on, but you're going to hold my worst day against me, then peace to you. Yeah. You know, so, um, yes, it was very hurtful at the time, but it's been five years now. It's like, we haven't had a relationship in five years. I'm moving on. If you choose to stay there, that's, right. that's your poor choice. Well, I think that's a really healthy way to deal with it. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've done some reading on how much forgiveness can help you so that you don't stay bitter right, yeah. and angry. And because those feelings and those emotions aren't going to help you with your recovery. That's exactly right. Um, any uh, highlights or... I don't know if you can call them highlights from the psych ward, things that stood out to you as incredibly uh, beneficial, things you learned, uh, some good takeaways from there. 
you know, uh, I can't help but talk about faith because it's a huge part of my life. I, again, it was about three years after getting out that it finally hit me how much the psych ward is like the church. Mm. And people hear that initially and go, oh my God, I can't believe you're saying that. But (laughs) if you stop and think about it, you have, in many cases, a group of like-minded people, or if they're not like-minded, they've been through similar things. These are people who are at a place maybe because they've hit their lowest point and they need help, right? And so we're sitting down. I think for me now, the psych ward is almost the ideal of what the church could be. I have a lot of issues with the church now because I see the way the church treats people. But I think if we really if the church behaved like the psych ward and we sat down and said, hey, let's talk about real life. Let's talk about what makes you happy, what makes you sad, happy, glad, your, you know, your traumas. Let's talk about your views. Let's work through these things together. Let's support each other. Let's let's be an AA meeting almost. You know, let's mm. let's support each other. Let's talk about recovery because whether you're recovering from childhood sexual abuse or a suicide attempt or whatever, we're all, I think, recovering from something. And so for me, it finally hit me that, man, the psych ward was such a safe place. It was a Mm. safe place like I want the church to be, a place where I can come, lay down my burdens, rest, get the help that I need. Yeah, be real. Take the mask off and say, man, this is who I am. And and I need hope and I need help and so do you. So let's be kind to each other, you know, and right. and not allow our worst day to define the rest of our day. So I think for me, when I look at something like – and I know this is not a, a religious show, but I look at something like the message of Jesus and Jesus talking about grace. That's grace to me. Grace is – your worst day doesn't get to define the rest of your days. And that's right. certainly what I learned in the psych ward minus the, you know, the religious lingo. It's okay. You've hit rock bottom. Now what? Right. Yeah. So I'm curious, you know, you talk about faith being a really important piece um, of who you are today. You were a pastor. And I also hear you talking about some frustrations you have with the church and the way they treat some people. So I'm curious where you stand um, today and with the church. Yeah, sure. I am very honest, and it offends some people, (laughs) and it ruffles some feathers. Um, But I try to be, I try to balance my very raw (laughs) honesty with a whole lot of love and compassion and, hey, we're not always going to see eye to eye. Um, I think the church misses it a lot. I think that the church as an institution has a whole lot of power that they're not using to the best of their ability. I look at the church a lot of the ways. I look at the government, Republican or Democrat, when people who have power don't use it to lift those at the bottom up, but they push people down. When when we use the Bible as a weapon to keep people away rather than drawing everybody in, if we would take man, you're gonna get me fired up here, but if if we would <laughs> from a church standpoint, and if if we're talking about the words of Jesus, 
everywhere you look at Jesus, he was going to a person in need. He was meeting a need. He was not asking for your money. He was not building some, you know, building with a Starbucks inside and rolling out the red carpet and, and having pyrotech. He was saying, let me go to the person in need, the person who's blind, the person who's crippled from birth, whatever, and meet their need and make more space at the table rather right. than saying it's us four and no more. You don't look mm-hmm. like me, vote like me, worship like me, dress like me. So you're not welcome here. Jesus said, come on, let's go. Come on, hooker. Come on, prostitute. Come on. Right. Come, you know, all of you, there is room for you here. So yeah. if the church was that, if the church was a hospital for hurting people, man, that'd be incredible. But a lot of times right, right. It's, it's more of a country club. So yeah. that breaks. Me. Right. So are you, are you still active in the church? I am. After saying all that, I am. <laughs> Oh yeah, we are part of a, a pretty small church here um, in downtown Birmingham, and um, it is church unlike anything I've ever been a part of before. I sat down when we first started there. I sat down with the pastor, and said, "Look, I got a lot of garbage, a lot of baggage, a lot of church hurts. I don't need church. I'm here for my wife because she wants to go. <laughs> I'm right, here for right. my kids because my wife wants to raise them in church. But I'm done." And so I asked him a lot of really hard questions about theology and politics and just social justice. All of those things matter a lot to me. And he, we got through the – he answered all my questions very honestly. And we got to the end of the conversation. He said, here's what I need you to know. I believe that what is important is your lived theology. So I don't care all the stuff you believe, your dogma, you got all this stuff figured out, you got answers to every question, your faith is black and white. If you're still treating people like crap, I don't care. I'm not interested. But I care about what you do with what you believe. That's what this church is about, is what are you doing with what you believe, what you think about God, whatever that means. And I thought, man, you know what? This is probably a place I can be a part of. So... Uh, I'm there treading very lightly, <laughs> sort of waiting for the shoe to drop. But <laughs> so far, it's been a very safe, welcoming place where people matter. Yeah, that's good. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, I know some of what I read um, on your website talked a lot about, it, it felt to me almost like you believe more in loving kindness and being kind and accepting of others more so than and I don't want to judge your how religious you are and whatnot, but like that is the core value that you hold. And I thought that was great. And That's I it. can understand I some of your sick of religion. <laughs> yeah. Just like me. Right, right. right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Hey, if we can get back to your story. So yeah. you did your week in the ward, right? In the psych ward. So after you get out of the psych ward, what happens then? Like, like you said, you had, you didn't have a job. I know um, from my own experience of three weeks in a partial hospitalization program, one week isn't going to cure you, right? right? And, and some of your, maybe I don't know how your wife felt or other friends that knew about it, I, and sometimes I think they believe, all right, you're done with the, your, your week and you're all, all is good. Yeah, take and, the cast and off. It's, <laughs> yeah, and it's just not the case. So yeah. w- what was that like walking out, and were you worried, like, Holy, for me, part of it was like, holy crap, what do I do now? Now I'm on my own? Are you kidding? Right. It was scary as hell. Yeah. You know, I remember thinking, I've just stared death in the face, 
and I'm still scared to death. Um, what happens if I hit a really bad day next week, next mm. month? What happens if I get really good for six months and then the bottom falls out again? Right. I'm going to let all these people down again. That was my thing. I was still thinking about everybody else. Um, and, and it's tough because, again, in, in, the, in the Christian world, we're taught love God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. So we think love God and then love everybody else. But we forget that as yourself part, that third thing, we, yeah, right. we totally ignore self-care and that it is absolutely okay and appropriate and necessary. And essential. Yeah. Like, particularly if you want to be helping others, you need to help yeah. yourself first so that you are in a healthy place where you can support others, right? That. So... Now, what I've learned these last five years is recovery is a lifelong process. You know, any good drunk will tell you that. Any good alcoholic that's been going to AA every Monday and every whatever, you know, for the last 30 years, they will tell you that recovery is a lifelong process, that I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm like, dude, you haven't had a drink since 72. Yeah, but I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm like, God. But it's the same for me. I know – that I am, even though it's different being a mental illness and being an addiction, I know every time I take that little white pill that I'm living with depression. I'm living with yeah. anxiety. I'm living with PTSD. I am a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. Dude, it happened 30 years ago. Yeah, but I'm surviving it because it's still every time I go in that public restroom and I wait for a stall to open because I'm scared to death to go to the urinal at 35 right. years old, I know that, you know what, I'm a survivor of abuse. Yeah. So it's, it's tough. It's not easy. Recovery is not easy. Anybody that thinks you're just gonna, you know, take your magic pill and snap out of it and everything's suddenly okay is sadly confused and mistaken. Um, but it's worth it. It's yeah, worth it. Yeah. I look at over five years and I, see this little girl that I wouldn't have had, you know, we have a three-year-old now and, and I look at my little boy who's about to start kindergarten and man, I get, I can't even hardly talk about that kid without getting choked up because I think <laughs> I tried to die the day before he turned a year old and yeah. I never would have, you know, made all these incredible memories that we get to make and being a dad's the greatest thing in the world. It's the hardest yeah. job and the greatest gift in the whole world. Absolutely. And I that. So recovery is worth it. Yeah, absolutely. What was uh, the immediacy of walking out of that place, the psych ward? What was your first week, your first two weeks? What was that like? And were you trying to set up uh, like, I need a psychiatrist, I need a um, a psychologist? And what were those weeks like? A lot of it's a blur. A lot of it I don't remember. Right. Um, A lot of it I don't remember. I, I, from about, it's it's interesting how the brain works, and I guess just because it was such a traumatic period. But about six months before the attempt and almost a year after is just one big blur. About 18 months there for me is just a blur. Right. But I do remember my wife coming back to pick me up and driving home. I remember laying back in the passenger seat, seeing the exit signs go by on the interstate, and thinking what you said earlier, I got to go home now. I got to find a job now. Will I 
ever feel comfortable stepping foot in a church again. I'm from small town mm. Alabama. Everybody knows your business. Right. And everybody wants to believe a rumor before they ever give you a chance to tell the truth. You know? Oh, yeah. And so I was scared to death. I was scared to death thinking, what do I do now? I, okay, I'm out. I'm, I'm free, but it's almost – you have these people, these these guys or whatever that have, have spent lives in, a lifetime in prison, 20, 30, 40 years, and suddenly they're out. And they're like, I kind of I just like to go back because I don't know what, yeah, what right. to do now. You know, there was safety there. Um, they weren't going to let me die. Right. So, so, yeah, there was practical things like calling and finding doctors, finding psychologists, psychiatrists, um, for my wife and I deciding that we were going to stay together. She had everybody mm. telling her to leave me. Everybody said, dude's lost it. He's crazy. He tried to leave you and your kid. Get out. Come back to Florida where she's from. Come back to Florida. You can stay with us till you get back on your feet, but you can't stay with him. And Man, that just adds to the stress of the whole situation, doesn't it? Yeah. So much on your shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. You're already at the lowest of the low and they're just beating you down more. Yeah. It's almost unthinkable. And you think, you know, if <laughs> I decided to get better and this is how you treat me, I decided to do the hard work and recover. And, and this right. is what you say. Um, but man, I tell you what, she became the grace of God to me. If I have ever experienced the power of a second chance, it was with her. She said, I know who you are deep down under all these layers of shame and secret keeping and all this pain and trauma. I know the man I married. I know the man that you are. I believe in you and I'm going to stick with you through this. And she did. She stuck with me like glue. We started, I was going of course to individual counseling and therapy and then we started marriage counseling together and she started reading and talking to people and getting advice from other women who had been through, you know, similar things. And oh, that's fantastic. Said, yeah, I just want to be the best support to you that I can be. And not everybody has that. So yeah, one of my blog all. posts, one of my blog posts is uh, titled "Spouses Need Support Too." Yeah. You know, they stand by us at that hardest time. And my wife held our family together for four to six months of my major depression and. Uh, yeah, I think uh, was did she seek out so the marriage counseling? Did she have any uh, other support for herself? She had a couple of people that she trusted. We so we one thing that we did that some people agree with and some people absolutely don't, and it's totally okay. But um, we decided when I got out on the way home, driving home that afternoon, we said we're not going to tell anybody right now. So. Her family knew, my family knew, my best friend knew, her best friend knew. That was it. Mm -hmm. um, anybody else, people from the church, people from the community who called to say, hey, we heard something's going on. We said Steve had pneumonia and he's been in the hospital for a week. We're not asking for visitors. He's going right. to be fine. He's just really sick. So we lied through our teeth um, for a year. Didn't tell anybody. Didn't talk about it to him other than counseling, therapy, and you know, all that. But, but as far as just people that we knew, we didn't talk about it because we decided if we're going to get well, if we're going to get better, if our marriage is going to survive, if I'm going to start living again, it's got to be all about us and not about anybody else. So there's people that totally disagree with that, but that's what we did. It worked for us. I don't regret it for a second. 
Right. And so she talked to the couple of people that she knew and trusted that were supportive. Good. Um, and then, of course, we had our own um, counseling and therapy and that kind of thing. Yeah. Awesome. Well, you got you pulled through a lot. Yeah. Like, it's been I a mean, journey. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And then uh, now it's this is your work. This is your job and who you are, right? Like yeah. You're, yeah, that's what you're I do. An, author you're you do some public speaking and some yep. coaching yeah um can you tell uh tell us a bit about some of the work you do sure yeah so um september of last year it was the the four-year mark i said you know what i want to tell this story and um so the first of september i started writing a book and i just started pouring over hours and hours and hours I said i'm gonna have this thing out by the 22nd of september that was that was the day it was d-day and um so i'm gonna have this book out in 22 days i'm gonna self-publish it i'm gonna put it on amazon i don't care if i make a dime off of it i'm getting this story out and i did and it became an amazon bestseller and it was just crazy so many people are going Dude, this is my story. Oh my gosh, I've been there. Oh, I grew up in the church and I could never tell anybody that I was dealing with all this stuff. I know exactly what you've been through, you know. And yeah, um, wow. Yeah, I'd been blogging for five, seven, eight, about eight years. Um, and, and my blog was doing really well. And um, I've always been kind of an out-of-the-box guy and, and been very honest about my struggles and stuff other than the mental illness side. So when I started telling this, people were like, oh, my gosh. Um, so, yeah, so I have from pastor to a psych ward. Um, then in March of this year, um, released a 21-day self-care journal. So a, a friend of mine, Kate Piper, is a licensed marriage and family therapist. And I said, look, I want you to, to write this with me. Don't let me say the wrong thing. Um, right. You know, I've sort of got the idea for what I want to do, but I want you to go through this with the eyes of, of a therapist and, and oh, make nice. sure that I'm not giving bad advice to anybody. And so, yeah, so I wrote Self-Care for the Wounded Soul. And it's just 21 days of messy grace, which is what I write about. Um, so did that. Um, then January, so before that, January of this year, um, my buddy Robert Vore and I, who would be a great guest for you to have, by the way, uh, talk about a guy with who's living with depression. Um, Robert Vore and I started CXMH, which is a, a podcast at the intersection of Christianity and mental health, sort of okay. my life. So right. we do that together. We're off for the summer, but um, we do that together every week. So we bring in almost every episode. We have um, a mental health expert and then uh, someone from the faith community, some sort of a, a Christian leader. And we just talk about this thing, this this tension between faith and mental health. So it's a blast. So yeah, do that. That's awesome. How, do, uh, how would our listeners uh, be able to get to that? Yeah, if you go to um, cxmhpodcast.com, you can find everything there, CXMH on iTunes and Stitcher and all that stuff. So Okay. Yeah, so it's there. And then, yeah, I do life coaching, um, which is just a blast. It is not – a lot of people don't know about life coaching. It's not counseling. Um, So, you know, counseling a lot of times is going to dig and work backward, but coaching is working forward. So I'm I'm talking to people who have maybe recovered from something, and they're saying, okay, I'm ready to start living again. And so we talk about that. Maybe they're in transition from high school to college or college to the real world or 
from one career's ending and they're ready to sort of start their second half. And so uh, it's a blast. I love doing, love, love, love doing life coaching. Yeah, and other than uh, finding information on your website, I know it's there, and your website is IamSteveAustin.com, correct? Yep, that's right. So people can go to IamSteveAustin.com. Um, do you do other advertising to, to drum up some business for your coaching, or is, is it word of mouth primarily? Yeah, it's word of mouth. It's through the blog. It's through, I have a mailing list. So I, um, if people are interested, if they want to sign up at IamSteveAustin.com, if you sign up for the mailing list, you get the ebook of From Pastor to a Psych Ward for free. So um, yeah, there's about a thousand people on there. So I've just, you know, blow their email inbox up once a yeah. week. I don't blow it up. Just once a week. <laughs> just once a week. Uh, yeah. So oh, yeah. Fantastic. That. And, um, you and got a the, new project, right? Yeah. Uh, run, run three for me. Yeah. Can you tell us about Run 3 for me? It is um it's a joy. I get to sort of marry my two loves. I love to run. And so I get to marry this idea of running, which I do for myself, and suicide prevention, which is, you know, my heart. Um so what I'm doing is running 3 miles for people. I run 3 times a week and um so people are sending me through social media or through email the story of someone that they've lost by suicide or their own story or the story of someone they care about who's living with mental illness every day. And they're saying, run for me, run in my honor. And so it's uh, it's a really special time. I While I'm running for whoever that person is, I've got their story in my mind and I'm thinking about them, praying for them, whatever. But I, I have them in my mind for those three miles. So it's just a cool way to connect with people and let them know that they're not alone. Yeah. Oh, that sounds incredible. I thought I remembered, too, reading that you'll actually snap a shot along the way. I do snap a shot. on Instagram. I do. Yeah, I sure do. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's that is. That is a, that's a brilliant idea. And that's a, is that your latest, newest kind of project? Yeah, that's my newest thing. The Pastor to Psych Ward is on iTunes as well. If people aren't readers, but they would rather listen to the story, um, from Pastor to a Psych Ward is a, a 13 episode serial podcast. So they can go right. basically listen to an audio book um, yep. in podcast form. So I've got that and run three for me and just stay busy. Cool. Yeah, that's awesome. So I know, um, obviously, running, you even mentioned yourself, that's part of the way you stay healthy. Yeah. Right. What are some other pieces you do to maintain a positive uh, mental health at this point? Sure. You know, I, man, it's all about self-care. Um, I, I do run. I exercise six days a week. People are like, good grief, that's a lot. But it's my medication. It, <laughs> my anxiety, now this is with doctor's observation and approval. I would never do this on my own, so please hear me say this first. But I've gone from taking anxiety meds three times a day to taking it once a day. All right. Because I'm running, because I'm exercising, because I'm getting right. out there busting my butt and sweating like a dog, you know. And yeah. it's, it's amazing how you can – anybody who runs gets this. You can totally empty yourself and still somehow feel amazing at the end of it. So mm -hmm. it has – it's helped with my anxiety a great deal. So I do that. Um, I sleep. I was not a good sleeper. I was this guy who would stay up till 11, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning every night and then be up by 6 to get ready for work. And that's terrible. It's a terrible way to sleep. So yeah. um, now, you know what? I take a little pill to help me go to sleep. And I go to bed 
by nine nine thirty most of the time, and I sleep all night long. Nice. So, yeah, so that's a big one. Um, I try to eat as healthy as I can. I still love my ice cream, and I still love some chicken fingers. <laughs> right, right. But generally speaking, I try to eat well. I do what the doctor says, and I talk to people when I'm struggling. I reach out. I don't suffer in silence. Right. That's a big one, isn't it? It is. It's a huge one. Um, yeah. And then boundaries, man. Boundaries, boundaries, boundaries. I don't listen to the opinion of people who don't get it. I don't let people shame me anymore. Not everybody understands my life or my struggles or the reason that I do things or the things that I write, you know, people out, Mm. good Lord, you start a blog, you're going to find trolls and people that disagree with your perspective on things, but that's okay. They can do that. And I don't have to absorb their negative energy. So I I didn't learn boundaries until I was 30 years old and that has changed my life. Yeah. What about, um, I know you talked about how bad isolation can be and that's how your two weeks were prior to your, um, attempt. So are you, is that something you pay attention to as well? Are you, do you try to be social and have a group of friends or certain friends you reach out to and, is there a social aspect as well that helps keep you healthy? There is. My buddy Robert Vore, I mentioned earlier from the, from the CXMH podcast, he says, loneliness is my kryptonite, right? right, and, right. And, and that's it. It is when you are, man, when you're battling with depression, being by yourself for some extended period of time is about the worst thing you can do. Yeah. So it doesn't mean that I need to be unhealthy on the other end of the spectrum and, and never alone. It's good to have some time to have some quiet. Absolutely meditate or do whatever you do, that's totally great. But when I'm feeling triggered, when I'm feeling low to withdraw from everybody to disengage is a really bad idea. So yeah, I have my safe people that I can say, Hey, it's a shitty day. Yeah. And they say, come on, let's talk about it. Let's go get some coffee or what? Right. Let's go for a run. Let's have my workout buddy that I work out with almost every day. It, I go for, you know, the physical exertion, the exercise, all that. But I go because dude's one of my best friends and I can tell him anything. So if I'm having a really crappy day, I can say, hey, man, today just sucks. Yeah. And also educating your friends who maybe don't have a lived experience with mental health to say, when I tell you something like I'm having a really shitty day, I don't need you to counsel me. I don't need you to be my doctor. I just need you to say, hey, dude, I'm listening. I hear you. I'm a safe space. You don't have to you know, go through all these things. Maybe you should do this. Maybe you should. What about this? No. Right, just be right. the safe space for me. So yeah. uh, that's really helpful for me. Cool. What about, I know you uh, just mentioned it briefly, and I, I saw it on one of your videos, too, that you had mentioned you had been meditating. Do you meditate regularly? I love it. Oh, yeah. my gosh. So, dude, it's it has changed so much for me. So, okay, again. And you weren't even going to talk about it. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, you know, I never know with because I can go like really strong on the religious spirituality, all that side. But I hate to just if people are like, oh, my God, here's another who's quacks. 
But yeah, no, I think the meditation piece is huge. Well, it's and huge. mindfulness. Yeah, it's huge for me because I grew up in the evangelical Christian church where prayer is God is way out there and I'm throwing my request God's way. I'm just lobbing them out there. Hey, I'd like this. I'd like a pony. I'd like, you know, a whatever. Give me this. Give me that. Answer all these requests. Sort of this celestial Santa Claus in the sky. And meditation really does the opposite. It says, get quiet. I, my favorite definition for meditation is a vacation from concern. Mm. So even if it's just five minutes to unplug from everything, plant my feet on the floor, put my back against the chair, close my eyes, take some deep breaths, and remind myself of the things that I already am and the things that I want to be, right? So meditation for me looks a lot like positive affirmation. I am healthy. I am safe. I am whole. I am at peace. I am a good husband. I am a good father. You know, and I just start going through these I am statements. Whether these things are true or not, they either are already true or I want them to be true. Yeah. And just taking some deep breaths and not worrying about my to-do list, not worrying right. about what my eye calendar says, not worrying about work, but just yeah. these five minutes are all about me. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I haven't heard the spin of positive affirmations through the meditation. Uh -huh. I think that's a great idea. I, love I know um, I try to meditate and just focus on my breath and try to release thoughts from my mind. And if they come, I just let them go and right. focus back on my breath. Yep. But I haven't heard about positive affirmations. And there are so different, so many different ways to meditate too, right? Yeah. I would imagine, and if you haven't, I would think you would want to try to meditate while you're running. You oh, love yeah. running, right? And just focus on your body sensations and your feet hitting the ground yep. and really, really be present with the running rather than letting your mind wander while you're running, which might be okay at times too. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, it's awesome. really cool. Really, really cool. cool. I, um, for me, a lot of times when I meditate, I use an app. I do guided meditation. Um, okay. so I love so like calm, the calm app is fantastic. There's several others. I don't get paid a yeah. dime for, you know, any of that stuff. But, um, but I love guided meditation because it's yeah, still new to me. It's, it's, you know, th I'm three months into this thing. Yeah. Um, but you know, there's I all use, kind of uh, topics. Yeah. I've used one called insight timer. Oh, I don't have that one. It's really cool. Check it out because you can um, s you can search their database and you could put like I want a three to five minute meditation or a ten to fifteen minute meditation. I'd like it on this topic: self compassion or sleep or different topics. So it's very cool, and it also it's a free app and it also records um, your time of meditating if you. Um, choose to check out how much you've been doing. Too. I love it. So you could set some goals and things. Yeah. The, you know, the cool thing with meditation for us is my kids have not had good sleep habits and calm has, um, sleep stories. So oh, you've cool. got whoever this person is with this very calming boy, you know, and they're right, reading right. wind in the willows or whatever, some great kid story. Uh, they have some originals about the queen of calm and all this stuff. And so my kids now they ask for, Hey dad, will you play a bedtime story? And we'll be halfway through the story and they're out like a light. <laughs> so it is great. great. Yeah. All right. Um, any uh, any final thoughts you want to share? Maybe a final note to anybody who's listening who may be going through depression right now? Yeah. Um, 
Hmm. Well, thank you first for having me. It's such an oh, I'm honor. I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Yeah, it's just an honor to to share my story, to share where I've been and where I'm hoping to go. But um, yeah, if you are listening and you are in the throes of depression, number one, you got to know that you're not alone, that you are not the only person right now or the only person who has ever been at the end of the rope. Um, I've been there. I know what rock bottom looks like. I have felt it. And I can tell you that it gets better. I can tell you that hard days suck. They're terrible. There are unthinkable things and times and thoughts that we have when we're in sort of that dark night of the soul. But hard days don't last forever. So hold on. But while you're holding on, reach out. Ask for help. Make a phone call. Go get out of the house. Go see a friend. Just go to the coffee shop by yourself if you have to. But get out of that house. Get out of that dark room. Get off that couch. Go for a run if you have to. Run until you can't run anymore. But do something to get out of the place. I think that... This is a whole other topic, but I think there's a a major connection between what's going on in our mental state and what's going on in our physical state. So a lot of times the lights are off. It's really dim. You, you look at a lot of people with depression, a lot of people with bipolar, their symptoms are a lot worse at night because it's mm. dark, because they're disconnected from people. They feel all alone. I don't want to bother them. Maybe right. they're in bed, you know, but – Turn the light on. Get out. Go make a connection somewhere. Just go walk around Walmart. You know, <laughs> right, do right. something to say, "Hey, I'm not alone. Hey, there are other people. I people are seeing me." Um, right. And the last thing is just tell the truth. Tell the truth. Don't feel like you gotta do this thing, wrestle this bear alone. Tell the right. truth and say, "Hey, I need help." Yeah. Yeah. Oh, some awesome pieces of advice. Thanks, man. All right. Well, I want to thank you again. Really, uh, I'm privileged to have you on the show. Well, thank you. It's been a blast. All right. Well, stay strong. All right. You too, my friend. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text to 741741. To connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you're a man who has experienced depression and would like to be interviewed for the show, please reach out to me on Twitter at AlLevin18. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.